0: This summer, don't just watch soccer. Play in the DraftKings Wheel Shot Challenge presented by Jägermeister. The rules of the game are simple. Just pick winners. At the end of the tournament, the five top point-getters in each nation's leaderboard walk home with a national team jersey and a Jägermeister jacket. All entries are automatically entered into an overall leaderboard where the prizes are even more lucrative, like the ultimate fan experience and all-expenses-paid trip to the winning team's country to celebrate sweet, sweet victory like a local. Enjoy a VIP soccer experience including game tickets, transportation, and swag, plus extra cash so you can roll like a meister. You don't need cash to enter, it's free. So what are you waiting for? Head to draftkings.com/realshot to adopt your team, get in the game and win exclusive prizes. Eligibility restrictions apply. See draftkings.com/realshot for details. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, World Cup Daily. The United States-led bid has won the right to host World Cup 2026. Brian Strauss and I will be talking about that today as part of our podcast, coming to you every day from Russia through July 16th. We're only on day two, folks. Just a small request, it would be a huge help if you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. It helps people find us. In this episode, I'm also joined by interview guest Ken Bensinger, who has written a terrific new book on the FIFA scandal called Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. Onward! Brian, we're here back for day two of our daily podcast from the World Cup in Moscow, and we've got news, baby! Feels like it's day 28. (laughs) The U.S.-led bid to host World Cup 2026, has won. In
1: and a landslide. In a landslide. yeah. Not even close. Not close.
0: And after the shame and surprise of losing to Qatar for World Cup 2022, the U.S. is back hosting the World Cup in 2026 with Mexico and Canada along for the ride, 10 games each. The U.S. getting 60 games, including every game from the quarterfinals onward. Um
1: what are you thinking right now, man? Is this a this is a historic day, right? I'm thinking about how tired I. Am. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it I've been here for 36 hours. Um, I I feel like a pile of jello. Um, we should tell our 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 listeners thank you first of all for tuning in, and second, it took us a a, a solid couple hours to get back from the uh, the Congress today. Transportation so that, issues. Yeah, transportation issues. Um, and we're both starving. Um, I've been here for 36 hours and I've already bled my own blood twice. So what? Yeah, yeah, I've had a couple I've had a couple incidents like you're bleeding? Not at the moment. What did you do? I cut my finger and then um, yesterday, I was felled by some sort of sign stanchion that had blown over in the wind <laughs> and I didn't see it and I tripped and I scraped the shit out of my leg. Um, and of course, like, and it was funny because the city was empty yesterday, right? It was a holiday. It was Russia Day yesterday, and the city was empty. Everyone had the day off, and for and and yet, the only group meeting in the the only group of people I saw in the entire city yesterday was like the Monday morning sit on the wall and smoking dudes club that was hanging out outside the metro station across from the Congress Center where I had to go get my credential, and that's where I tripped over this sign okay and cut my leg up
0: maybe you should get like a tetanus shot or something
1: it was like it was gravel it's russian gravel that's healthy they eat it here
0: um before we get back to world cup 26 (laughs) sorry listeners might hear during the recording of this podcast outside my hotel room in red square here every night are fans i like fans making lots of noise and i like that you know
1: Passion. We were just talking about that, like what's going to be the soundtrack to this World Cup, and it's going to be people, people singing on the street outside your hotel room but all night long.
0: Last night, it kept going until 4 a.m. Because the sun doesn't set here. But It's insane. That's it's daytime all the time. I brought an eye shade. Maybe you should borrow it. Um, but it's something I hadn't thought about heading into this tournament, which is if you're in real central Moscow here, this is a place where fans come. They get rowdy. They get drunk. They make lots of noise. And it was kind of you know cool the first few nights last night until 4 a.m. with the Mexican fans doing their homophobic chant. Uh, not great.
1: We will, we will power through.
0: We will. So let's talk about World Cup 26. Um, I was there in Zurich in 2010 when Qatar beat the U.S., and it felt shady, it felt um, corrupt, it felt like the people like who were involved in that, like Sunil Gulati and Carlos Cordero, that it was like a morgue-like state afterward. Um, the opposite today. Eight years, a lot of things can happen.
1: Well, I think what happened in in twenty ten was that the the U S. bid um, entered a game uh, for which they did not understand the rules. They were really naive. That that's clearly what happened, and they and they've admitted as such. You know. Since then, um, and this time, uh, and 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 this was—I had a chance really quickly to chat with Sunil after the vote.
0: Gulati, the former U.S. Soccer president,
1: the very same. And uh, I actually wrote this quote down so I would have it. Um, but he said that that not only were, were some of the reforms and the rule changes enough to convince the U.S to bid again, obviously this time along with Canada and Mexico, but it really made the difference in them winning and winning emphatically. Um, and what he said was not only producing a technical report, but giving it teeth is mm-hmm. what he called it. Um, and, and reemphasizing it before the vote, minutes before the vote, um, they sort of posted again on the huge screen in the Congress Center the parameters of the bids the 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 infrastructure that existed they mentioned the the obvious revenue discrepancies um and they really kind of hammered home to the voters you know you know the world cup is a is a technical undertaking and there's really no comparison between the two bids on this front um sunil also said that um the new rules banned uh gifts and developmental projects you know uh, not only gifts to to
2: Potential That's voters,
1: right? But also the bidders offering to, you know, do do you know, build a stadium in your country in exchange for for your vote, that kind of stuff. Um, and the public vote, which of course we now know, we you know, we now know who voted for whom, and 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 there can't be sort of shady promises made on on that front. So, uh, and it was interesting to see who voted for Morocco. Um, Brazil voted for Brazil was sort of the one. Huh. Um, North and South American outlier uh, to vote for Morocco, and a Brazilian journalist actually uh, during the press conference admitted he was shocked that they all thought that they were going to vote for United Bid, and so they couldn't figure it out. So um, all of these all of these reforms not only were reaction to the 2010 vote for Qatar, but also paved the way, I think, for the for the win today.
0: No, and that makes sense. I mean, when it comes down to it, U.S. Soccer has had a lot of bad news on the men's side, at least in the last year, and missing the World Cup here, chief among them. But they really did need this to work out. And this is a really positive jolt of news. And now here's eight years that you can prepare for a World Cup in the United States and Mexico and Canada. Um, There's a whole industry that's going to develop around this tournament. You know, I know a lot of people today who work in the soccer business who now feel like they're going to have a job For the next eight years or at least the chance of getting a a job because there's going to be a lot of stuff around that more importantly for the sport itself uh, on the field host teams tend to do well you know not every time but uh, I asked Carlos Cordero today after uh, they had won uh, does he think that US soccer that the men's national team will be in a position to compete to win that World Cup in 2026. Uh, And he sort of said yes, not entirely said yes, he sort of hemmed and hawed for a second. But I'm not talking about coming in saying, we're going to win the World Cup, but at least put yourself in a position to go on a deep run. Uh, Christian Pulisic will be 27 years old at that point. Presumably, there will be more uh, quality players around him and... You hope that U.S. soccer gets it together on the soccer side and MLS teams and development and all that stuff. Because clearly on the business side, things are doing quite well, but the balance has gotten out of whack between the business side and the player side. And that was one thing that sort of popped up to me today. On the one hand, the money aspect was probably a big reason why the U.S.-led bid got this World Cup. They're promising $11 billion in profits for FIFA for this World Cup, shattering every previous record, but I also sort of get a little queasy about the U.S. being seen constantly as this cash register for soccer.
1: One of the one of the um, one of the points Cordero made during the election, I think I brought this up in a recent podcast or yesterday, which also feels like it was two weeks ago, um, that you know, Cordero during the election, the campaign pointed out how much more money multiples multiples more money the leading soccer federations around the world the germany's england's france france france's and spain's i've combined the two um i'm so messed up right now um this is like 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 when we did when i did the podcast with you from Abby's wedding where i was like buzzing yeah like i'm much more impaired right now than i was than i it's was from- that night Lack just, of from, sleep. just from just sh- from like a shit ton of jet lag and lack of sleep. By and, the
0: way, how great is it that the first four letter word uttered on the daily podcast was not by you but by Andre Arshavin
1: on the World Cup podcast? Yeah. That's immense. He's a hero. Um and uh and so the and these countries spend hundreds of millions more uh, on player development, on infrastructure, on coaching education, all these things than than US soccer does. So they might be seen as a cash register, but they're spending nowhere close. The countries we're trying to catch are way, way ahead. And so, what Cord- the, the 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 point Cordero has made, the political capital he spent trying to get this this bid um, has in part been uh, in order to generate the kind of revenue he thinks U.S. soccer needs to compete with the best in the world. That and 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 now look, now he's on the hook to do that. Now he's on the hook with this bid to get the partnerships, get the sponsorships, get the TV deals, get the revenue that if 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 you say we need to spend three hundred million more dollars on player development and coaching education and fields and all that kind of stuff, go get it. And now he's got the the carrot to go do so. So um, you know, he he put a lot of eggs in this basket to win the bid and now there's another challenge uh, to put it to to put it to use to improve soccer in the country.
0: And I don't want to give full credit to Carlos Cordero for this win because a lot of people deserve credit for it. But I will say this, and I wrote this today in my column, we are talking about it in the taxi on the way over here, is Cordero has now won two elections in the same year. He won the U.S. soccer presidential election. He has now won this election, which is also clearly a popularity contest um, for World Cup 26. In terms of Cordero, I think inclusiveness and humility are two really important things that sort of define the guy. I mean, I think people in U.S. soccer who were voting in the election, they liked the fact that Carlos Cordero, nobody says about him, he acts like he's the smartest guy in the room. And there's quite a few people in U.S. soccer who that is said about a lot. And I think humility is a good thing in this case. I also think inclusiveness, Carlos Cordero wants to actually listen to people Inside U.S. soccer is my sense, and that is not something that everyone has noticed from U.S. soccer leaders in the past. I think inclusiveness clearly you can use to define and describe having Canada and Mexico be part of this bid.
1: They made an interesting point at the press conference that I hadn't considered. Um, you know, they have a lot of uh, you know talking about how f- what 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 good friends they are and partners and and a lot of stuff about you know sh- sharing this tournament with Canada and Mexico and breaking down walls and, and, and brotherhood, and that all sounds great, and it's good. It, it genuinely is good. But another point that they made, and, and Cordero really stressed this, was the idea that, you know, a 48-team World Cup is is a bear. I mean, it's, it's the, there's very, very few countries on earth that could pull that off. Um, there's a lot of, you know, perhaps, you know, could two countries, you know, could, could the Netherlands and Belgium, you know, who bid for 2018, could they pull that off? Spain and Portugal, could they pull that off? And so one of the points Cordero was making was that this this bid reintroduces, uh, well, reintroduces co-hosting and introduces the idea of maybe even three or four countries right. hosting a World Cup. Scandinavia could host a World Cup. Southeast Asia could host a World Cup. And so what he was telling voters was, look, if we get this bid and we pull this off, and do it right. And maybe you could host a World You know, that, that the, the dream of hosting a World Cup, rather than being available to fewer countries than ever, actually could be available to more. And that it's the United bid that's going to pave the way for that. And he said that that really resonated uh, with a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the people they spoke to. Um, you know, U.S. soccer uh, was saying that, you know, they've spoken over 150 federations in person. In the past four months, I mean, and that's, that's just, just the three presidents. Yeah, that's just remarkable. They and they and and it just didn't look like Morocco. And I've said on this podcast. I mean, I I've been in Morocco. It's a beautiful country. I can't imagine the burden that would have been placed on the people there to the host if, a 48 they World were going to funneling fifteen billion dollars toward infrastructure that they were going to use for a month long event. Um, I spoke to. A, I was sitting next at the at the Congress. Um, I'd never been to a FIFA Congress before. It's it's interesting. What do you think? Um,
0: officious people
1: in FIFA blazers. It's boring. The Blazers, my God! It's like you. It's like you. It's like you stumbled into, into uh, It's like you stumbled onto a star destroyer. You know, all these dudes wearing these 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 natty navy blazers. That
0: would say FIFA on
1: them. Gianni Infantino is is a is a character. That guy. Um, I said in a tweet like like you could measure the substance in that guy's comments in parts per million. <laughs> I have never in my entire life encountered someone who says so many words while saying absolutely nothing. Although multiple references today to the smiles of children and the smiles of little boys and girls and I was creeped out by a lot of that. But I was um, sitting next to this Dutch guy and we were joking about sort of neither of our countries having qualified for the World Cup. And he was saying, well, at least you might win something today, you know, and that kind of thing. It's like, we have nothing. And then I said, well, speaking of that, I said, how are you sort of covering or commenting on the fact that, that the Netherlands voted for Morocco? And again, it's it's one of this sort of the liberal, we've talked about this, you know, the liberal Western democracies who you think on a geopolitical level would, would be more aligned with the United bid um, voting for Morocco, especially a lot of these European countries that are progressive and socially conscious. I mean, how do they, again, justify the, the burden, the financial burden placed on the Moroccan people um, if this thing were to come off? And he said that there are, God, I can't remember the number now because I can't remember my own name, but uh, there's a significant number of Moroccan. There's like a Moroccan diaspora in the right. Netherlands. He said that after World War II, um, the country was leveled and, you know, they were bringing in people to help rebuild. And for whatever reason, there was a pipeline to Morocco and that there are now numerous descendants of those immigrants playing pro soccer in in the Netherlands and even for the national team. So that was sort of a... Uh, whatever a, a salute to that that minority in the Netherlands to, to vote for Morocco and perhaps they did so knowing the United bid was going to win I mean w- you know we shooting some texts back and forth with some people before the vote we were getting clues of you know w- wins win a win by double-digit votes I, w- I will say this I wrote a story during the build-up to the vote about winning the bid about winning the World Cup bid if the United bid had lost I was screwed. Mm. I did not have that story ready to go. Right. So I was confident enough that they were going to win based on some of the talk and based on the vibe, um, but not by that amount, but not by that margin. And so maybe right. a couple countries who had interests in Morocco or, or dealings with Morocco knew that they were going to sort of place a token vote for Morocco because they maybe they had a sense the margin was as large as, as it was. But um, not surprised by the win, expected that going into today, going into the vote, but surprised by the, the margin of it.
0: So a couple of other things I want to talk about here today. One, Spain. Um,
1: speaking of shit shows. Oh yeah. my god.
0: So the day before the World Cup starts, Spain has fired its coach, Julian Lopetegi. I like saying Lopetegi. Well,
1: you're not going to say it anymore after today.
0: Uh well, he is the coach of Real Madrid. <laughs> okay, that's true.
1: That's true. Once <laughs> the, once Madrid gets back to the Champions League final, we'll be talking about him again.
0: You'll know be so sad though is if like Lopetegui has now taken the Real Madrid job. He gets fired right in <laughs> He gets fired after like six months with Real Madrid. Was it really worth it, man? He's I mean, gonna, like, he's
1: going to be the David Moyes following. Uh, yeah.
0: I mean, Spain is the team I p- predicted would win this World Cup in the magazine before the tournament. And now it's hard to think that they can win the tournament when they're having this much turmoil. Uh, he's named the coach of Real Madrid yesterday. Apparently, his bosses at the Spanish Federation only found out like 10, 15 minutes before the announcement. They were upset. They fired him. And now Fernando Hierro, the Spanish legend, is going to take over as the Spain coach the day before the World Cup.
1: It's mind boggling. We were, uh, I was talking to a guy from La Coruña. It's always they, one of the great things about World Cups, and World Cups, um, they're four years apart yes newsflash and so like you there are things you forget like um like i need to start my blog of hilarious press conference questions (laughs) that i've intended to do at the last two world cups and have forgotten um and um try not to bleed so much and uh the uh he's a bleeder the um the uh the cool the cool aspect of being in rooms with 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 people from all over the world yeah. Like I was in a room today with people from like 200 countries That's crazy, that's awesome um, All wearing the same blazer And uh, so, so anyway, getting to talk to to writers And journalists and people who who love the sport And people who follow it in all kinds of different places And have cool insight So anyway, so was, there was this dude from La Carunia who, who was talking to a couple of us um, And he was saying that Uh Lopetegui, was was like he called him like a little child who had who who you know had had a had a present um that he could open uh you know on Christmas morning but he just couldn't wait. He was just such a, he was such a baby. He lacked discipline. He wasn't an adult and he just had to have it now, you know? And so he tore into the package without without regard for the consequences. <laughs> he just ripped him. So this guy, you know, not from Madrid or Barcelona was just saying that, you know, the the federation was in an impossible position. Everything he did now was going to be judged based on the Madrid-Barcelona dynamic, who he started, who he benched, who he pulled out, you know, what what tactics he used, that everything was going to be now seen through that prism, and it put him in an absolutely impossible and untenable position, and he placed all the blame on Lopeteg. Again, this is one guy's opinion, but um, I just thought it was an interesting analysis.
0: It's fascinating to me that when this was announced yesterday, I was kind of like, boom, you know, this is a huge thing. But my first thought was not, oh, this guy's going to get his ass fired now, right? I mean, like, you have to have a really thorough understanding of the Madrid-Barcelona dynamic and the Madrid-Barcelona media dynamic, which I think is part partly what led to this. You know, my, my reaction initially was, okay, yes, the media is going to ask him about, you know, Club stuff in press conferences. All he has to say is, I'm not going to answer club stuff. But it is a lot bigger than that. In the Spanish based journalists that I know, both in English and in Spanish, got it. Like they were the ones who were saying, this is a firestorm yeah. now. And sure enough, here we are. Now, part of this too has to do with the guy who fired Lopetegui, the new Spanish Federation president, um, Rubiales who hasn't been in the job very long and to me this sounds like a very insecure move that is something that you do if you're upset that the guy didn't tell you that he was negotiating the days before the World Cup
1: yeah I can see that but you know after what you just said and after what this guy from La Coruña said you know there seem to be people who think that this you know this made sense again through that lens through 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 the dynamic that everything he does now everything he says every decision he makes is going to be is, is it impartial is it for the is it for the the best of the national team is he trying to grease the kids or pave the way for what he's going to do at madrid he also said i said what about yarrow and he said uh sergio ramos will listen to yarrow he's got that <laughs> he's got that zidane like uh you know that zidane like presence um even though i i guess he hasn't been uh I don't know what he's been doing. He hasn't been coaching. So. Well,
0: he's been with the, the Spanish the Fed, Federation. With the Federation. yeah. Um, so it's not that big of a change. He's at least been around the operation. Um, but it is, it's is—it's fascinating to me how this has played out. Could you imagine, like, I don't know, the Patriots fire, firing Bill Belichick right before the NFL playoffs?
1: Um, he said, again, I'm sorry to make like this guy the star of the show, but it's been a really, really long day, and he was willing to talk to me for a bit. Um, but he was sort of joking about, you know, there's a reason Germany has won four World Cups and countries like Spain and France have won only one because there's always drama. There's always some kind of self-inflicted implosion that happens with some of these countries. This feels like that, Spain that, that just, before
0: they started winning stuff in 2000 winners,
1: you know? And so, you know, we may, we, we joke about, didn't you make some joke about like, Who's going to go on strike? You know, because I picked France, right? So you're like, you know, who on who on the French team is going to go on strike or sit out at training or or have some kind of pout fest that's going to derail the entire thing? But that's the thing; we don't make those jokes about Germany. We don't, you know. We, and 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 it's uh, th- th- there are intangibles that lead to to, to to victories and and success. And some some countries seem to have them, and some countries seem to have chaos follow them.
0: It would be a great story now if Spain went ahead and still won the World Cup. They've still got the same players. Yep. That's and why Fernando you, him. you didn't pick him because a... of the coach. You picked him because of the players. So maybe I should
1: stick with my pick. Stick with your pick.
0: Spain! All right. You're getting hungry. You're getting tired. Into the home stretch. You're going to the opener tomorrow here in Moscow. Yeah. Stadium. You're going to go to I Russia. I should leave.
1: I should leave now. <laughs> <laughs> you I'd might gonna... get there in time. It's going to be an absolute circus.
0: Russia, Saudi Arabia. Get excited, everyone. It's the only game tomorrow. It is... The two worst teams in this World
1: Cup. That's true. It will be the worst World Cup game, and I'm lucky. I've been to World Cup games, so I mean, you know, to have to have a worst World Cup game you've ever been to means means you've been to some more than one. So not a complaint by any stretch. Um, but yes, I've already sort of had the oh my god, what am I going to write about? Panic. Um, and uh, but you know what? I'm going to get there early. You're going to sit in the media center for six hours. Sitting at long tables with all the desk lamps, and I'll have lots of time to to mull it over and think about it. You know, there'll be there'll be a really really bad opening ceremony. Oh, we all, uh, uh, Putin, Putin stopped by today. You did. You saw him in the flesh. I saw. I saw. I saw Vlad. Um, he had nothing to say about the the caps, which was unfortunate, which was a bummer. And for those of you who who were betting that I would not bring up the caps in this podcast, I apologize. You lose. Um. But uh, but yeah, I imagine he'll be there, even though he's apparently not much of a soccer fan, according to people here. And, uh, yeah, it'll, there'll be a terrible opening ceremony and then a terrible game. Um, and' we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll get through it. But the people here are just like, right? It's just it's just we're terrible, we're doomed, our team is awful. More pessimism probably than any. They may not have the worst run of any World Cup host in history, but there's certainly more self-hatred uh, than any World Cup host i would imagine ever about i think their so
0: team. until england hosts world cup 2034
1: 2034 oh someone asked today someone uh, uh, i think a brazilian asked today infantino um if uh if the u.s if the north american bid getting it would hurt maybe well maybe he wasn't brazilian anyway i don't remember um because it wouldn't make sense for a brazilian to ask this question but um whether whether this would hurt Argentina and Uruguay wanting to host in 2030, wanting to host the Centenary World Cup, because there's a large number of people on this planet who think North and South America are the same. Are the same. So um, North America hosting it would then hurt South America hosting it. And of course, Infantino said nothing. He he said words. There were words came out of his mouth, but there was no answer. We're looking forward to this World Cup. The World Cup is beautiful. It's all about smiling children. It's all about football. FIFA's in a good place, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you think china's got to get it right i mean the, the chinese have to be just bursting at the seams that to, would be my to get pick. the world cup you know but then it should go to england it should i mean if we're hosting it again after 94 you know it's it's 1966 for england that that that's multiple generations i think ago. it'd
0: be a tremendously fun tournament over there um
1: and and if and if there is an issue with size you you, you make it a uk world cup you you play you play a game in glasgow and edinburgh and cardiff um i'm in you know you do it maybe maybe throw one to dublin a few you know i actually would love to go uh, to british Argen- isles argentina,
0: uruguay paraguay
1: forget paraguay but like argentina uruguay would be great it would be although they would have to do a lot of building too right
0: they would and that would be a concern just on wastefulness you know you know me i've always said every world cup should be in germany
1: argentina is also your favorite kind of pretty right? much yeah
0: um but anyway it's been a historic day for it you guys. I got to eat, so, man. Let's wrap this you up. You got to eat we yeah. dumper. Uh, for now, we'll be back tomorrow. Cool. Big thanks to Brian Strauss. Next up is my interview with the author, Ken Bensinger. Our guest today is Ken Bensinger, a reporter for Buzzfeed who has a terrific new book, red card, how the U S blew the whistle on the world's biggest sports scandal. I've read it. It's fantastic. Ken, thanks for coming on the show, and congratulations on your book.
2: Thanks, Grant, so much for having me on the show, and I'm really glad to hear you liked it.
0: Yeah, there's so much to talk about here, but I guess first off, could you just explain to our listeners what your book is about?
2: Yeah, um, this is the the, the deep, hopefully definitive account of the U.S. criminal investigation of corruption uh, corruption in global soccer. Mm -hmm. So this is the story behind the case that we, that the whole world, not just the soccer world, but the whole world was engrossed with it a few years ago when those famous arrests happened in Zurich and all these soccer FIFA officials were dragged out of this fancy hotel in Zurich in the early morning. This is the story of how they got to that point and what happened thereafter. Um, and uh, it's really you know sort of a forensic look at an American criminal investigation to take down um, what turned out to be a deeply, deeply corrupt soccer infrastructure around the planet.
0: There's so much good information and storytelling in this book. What kind of reporting is in it that you won't see anywhere else?
2: So as far as I know, I'm pretty sure I'm the only person who had the the chance to really learn um, how this investigation um, began, who the key players in the investigation were, and uh, how it developed, and uh, particularly some of the challenges um, and obstacles they met along the way, and and um, you know what the public has seen is sort of the successes and uh, the, the the positive outcomes um, from the prosecution's point of view of the, of the case. But there was actually a lot of roadblocks and problems they came across, and fish that got away, so to speak, and and um, chances to get other soccer officials that didn't that came up empty. And so I think what you really see is the trials and tribulation of building um, what what really is one of the most complicated. Um, corruption and money laundering cases in u.s history and, and i'm not just saying sports but um really all criminal investigations it was a massive undertaking and i think you readers will be able to see see how that happened through the through the law enforcement agents that are that that we learn about in the book
0: how did you convince people on the inside of the case to talk to you
2: it was very hard grant let me tell you i spent uh um well over a year reporting a book with almost no traction at all uh, in terms of getting people inside the case to talk to me. Um, and uh, I, I, I traveled all over the world talking to people and learning lots about soccer, learning lots about FIFA, about the Confederations, about um, how the world of soccer works, but almost nothing about the case, because it turns out the case was was designed to be a black box. The people working the case um, were instructed by the prosecutors to never talk to anybody, never reveal anything about the case. And, um, ultimately it just came to being around and knocking and knocking and knocking the doors enough times that people within the case, um, agreed to talk. I, I should note that even those who would talk to me, um, only did so on the condition that I'd never, um, uh, tell anyone who did talk to me and who didn't and who was talking to me. So, um, there's a lot of, um, uh, Anonymous type sourcing because uh, the people inside the act, uh, investigation, which is still ongoing, um, are not supposed to be talking in public. So um, uh, that's that's sort of the black box nature, box nature of it, and um, that was my biggest challenge.
0: Could you go into some more detail on who were some of the lead figures in the U.S. investigation?
2: Yeah, um, I think the um, the one that uh, is becomes somewhat something of the de facto hero of the story also happens to be the one that a a soccer-loving audience, I think, may find the most interesting anyway, Um, uh, and and in some ways the most unlikely member. Um, The investigation um, was done out of the Eastern District of New York, which is is a federal district um, that is in charge of Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island, and other parts uh, of that chunk of New York State, but not Manhattan, for example. Um, And uh, the prosecutors uh, in the case were out of Brooklyn as well, and there was a a small group of FBI agents also involved in the case, and they were out of the New York field office um, in Manhattan. But the the star of the show um, was an IRS agent um, from Southern Orange County in California. Um, but about as far away from that as you can imagine and, and seemingly light years away from all that, of what was going on with FIFA. But um, he worked out to be the perfect person to do the case. Um, his name is Steve Berryman. Um, and what's interesting about him um, is that he's he's by all accounts one of the best, if not the single best IRS agent in the entire country. Um, and he also happens to be a lifelong, um, very hardcore uh, uh, soccer fan or as he calls it, football um, he is a military brat and grew up a big chunk of his youth in, in the U.K. Um, and, uh, and although he speaks with an American accent, um, he feels uh, at least in part uh, English. And um, he's a huge Liverpool supporter. Um, and so uh, for him, uh, soccer is, is a very personal and incredibly important thing. And uh, he more or less pushed his way into this case. Uh, he heard about it by accident. And found a way into the case, um, and felt that it was really that that it just meant more to him than almost any other case because of his love for the sport. You
0: had written an investigative piece for BuzzFeed on the American Chuck Blazer before this book even happened. Uh, Blazer was a central player in the FIFA case. What's your sense in the big picture on Blazer now that you have spent all this time on this topic?
2: So it's you know I keep in touch with um, people in sort of the uh, the nebula or the galaxy around blazer of course he he passed away last summer um after a long bout of numerous illnesses he had cancer and he had diabetes and he was grossly overweight um but he's a he's an interesting and and complicated character there's no question that he was corrupt there's no question that he didn't believe the rules applied to him there's no question that if he wasn't so careless as to never pay his own taxes let alone not, not even file his own taxes um uh, he never would have fallen. Um, but at the same time, people who know him and care about him really speak about, uh, some of his great, uh, human qualities and people who care about the sport talk about some of the things that he did to benefit the sport. Um, you know, uh, a, a prime example for, for American audiences, it's, it's a, it's a pretty certain truth that the MLS would never have, uh, a, a big TV contract like it does today without Chuck Blazer, because it was him who engineered this deal uh, where um, where ESPN would take both the World Cup rights and MLS rights as a package. Um, that was back, I think that deal was done in the in the early 2000s. Um, it was a critical juncture uh, for MLS, and it was Chuck Blazer who delivered that to the league. And likewise, he was an instrumental in. Um, all the way back in the mid-1980s in creating a U.S. Uh, women's national team. Um, uh, he was the executive uh, vice president of the U.S. Soccer Federation at the time, and he pushed for there to be a women's national team when no one thought that was something important. Um, and he also um, helped play a role in, 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 in uh, organizing some of the women's World Cups and, and making that a more important thing. So there's no question that he had a positive impact on the sport. Uh, but at the same time, there's no question that he also had a negative impact on the sport, which is why, you know, he's such an interesting character. This is a guy who skimmed tens of millions of dollars from the sport, didn't pay taxes, didn't file taxes for CONCACAF. And so got in hot water, um, uh, you know, admitted to accepting bribes in t- to shape his votes on important World Cup things like where the host uh, country would be held. Um, and uh, it's what makes him a fascinating character. And of course, the fact that he, that Steve Berryman and the other agents in the case ultimately grab him and turn him into a cooperator, which um, completely opens up this massive criminal investigation, only makes him all the more fascinating.
0: Yeah, Blazer is one of the Americans in this book. Uh, Aaron Davidson is another American who has pleaded guilty in the FIFA scandal. Uh, we haven't seen anyone from sort of more recent vintage U.S. Soccer Federation involved do you think you said it's an open case um has that does that surprise you at all or how much do you think they looked into people from u.s soccer
2: i mean i know they spent time uh looking into other u.s soccer officials i know there was uh um some degree of surveillance of a few people uh, with different pieces of american soccer over the years um there's an anecdote in the book, for example, of um, Chuck Blazer being sent with a wire to um, eat dinner, wearing a wire to eat dinner in a Beverly Hills steakhouse with Alan Rothenberg. Um, for, you know, much of your audience will be familiar with him, but he's he's well known in the soccer world because he was the CEO of the 1994 World Cup. He was president of U.S. soccer and he was co-founder of the MLS. Blazer went to dinner with him, hoping to ensnare him or to, to catch him admitting to, to Corrupt acts, but that didn't didn't pan out. Um, uh, and um, I know that there was conversations with other much more recent vintage people of U.S. soccer, but I don't know of anyone else who got who got caught in the um, caught in the actual criminal targeting process. Um, which isn't to say that they wouldn't in the future, but I think the way that these investigations go is that the prosecutors, in a sense, follow the lowest hanging fruit and and the natural revolution was that actually uh, blazer didn't lead to davidson but blazer led to davidson's boss Mm. um who was a brazilian and um that guy was the kingpin of corruption in in north and south america and so it led them to all the things connected to him um and only when they exhausted sort of that particular fruit tree to continue the analogy um, could they move on to other things and um i I don't know where they go with the us the part of the black box box nature of the case is that there was real limits to what people would tell me. Um, I, I would say to people, put a pin in it, and we'll see if when it, whether other shoes drop um, for U.S. soccer in the future.
0: Chuck Blazer's running mate over the years was Jack Warner, uh, longtime president of CONCACAF who is all over uh, the government case but has yet to be extradited from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, is Jack Warner ever going to be extradited to the U.S.?
2: That's a great question, you know, Jack and Jack uh, and I were just emailing with each other the other day. Um, uh, he's um, uh, he never submitted to an interview for the book, by the way, but he's got a funny nature, which he um, he's fairly responsive to queries, um, and he almost always says no to everything, but in this kind of um, overly baroque, polite tone, excuse me, I'm gonna cough. <coughs> um, he's always politely and in an elaborate language saying, slamming the door in your face. That's the Jack Warner way. Um, the status of his uh, extradition case is that he's fought at tooth and nail um, and mostly suffered defeats along the way, um, but not the resounding defeat leading to extradition. Um, my understanding is that currently... Um, a hearing on whether he will actually be extradited is scheduled for the fall. Um, so we may hear news in that sort of in the September through November timeframe. Um, he had tried to appeal to the Trinidad and Tobago Supreme Court saying that the, its extradition treaty with the U.S. was unconstitutional, but that lost. And so now they're going to hear the facts on it. But it's been what it'll be over three years by that time that he was indicted. Um, and Jack's a, a funny character because in Trinidad, he's either um, loved or hated, but those who love him would protect him to the hilt. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put the chances at more than 50% that he ever ends up in the U.S.
0: Wow. Um, another name that is a big one in FIFA circles is Sepp Blatter. He was the longtime president of FIFA until 2015. Um, should we be surprised that Sepp Blatter has not been included in this case?
2: Well, Sepp hasn't been included in the U.S. criminal case, but of course he is under uh, criminal investigation in Switzerland right Mm -hmm. now. Um, So one of the fallouts uh, from this case after those famous arrests is that two days, I think, or three days after the arrest, uh, Blatter was elected to be president um, once again. um, And then... uh, um, a few days after that, he resigned, right? And so everyone, or he announced he was going to resign. And then in the fall, that all got accelerated because uh, Swiss prosecutors, the Swiss Attorney General, announced that they were going to um, they were going to do a criminal investigation against him. Now I, it's unclear where that stands because in, in recent uh, days and weeks, we've heard that the other person who was implicated in that investigation, Michel Platini, um, has apparently been exonerated or has been at least been told there's not going to be criminal action against him. Whether that affects bladder, we don't know. Um, but one telling thing about bladder is that he uh, basically doesn't leave Switzerland anymore. Um, I think he does go to his uh, to Russia, where he's well-beloved <laughs> and where they don't tend to extradite very often. Um, but um, people uh, note that he hasn't made any trips to other Western countries. And the assumption is because he's terrified of getting picked up or subpoenaed or extradited or whatever the case may be. So um, he seems to be saying put He's another pen pal of mine, and we <laughs> communicate from time to time. Um, and uh, he, you know, he he always talks about it. Uh, this is a very Trumpian term, perhaps, but he always talks about it being a, a witch hunt um, and that, that, that this is all motivated by a sense of American uh, desire for revenge against him and FIFA for not getting the 2022 World Cup. Um, and. I don't know if you want to touch on that topic, but that's one of the most interesting things I found reporting this: is how the rest of the world, world's perceptions of what uh, drives soccer politics and and things like that, is so different than what we see here in the states. Right? I mean, in the rest of the world, in Zurich and elsewhere, it's perfectly logical to assume that a giant criminal investigation would be launched because of a snub like not getting a world cup bid mm-hmm. but i can i can first assure you that's 100 percent not how this american investigation began mm-hmm. um and i second i would i would posit that it's, it's for those who understand the american justice system or at least how it used to be um uh it's it's uh almost inconceivable to imagine sort of the White House ordering an investigation like that uh, against an international sports body because of some, a vote uh, and that seemed to snub the country. I mean, there was no U.S. investigation of the IOC after Chicago was snubbed for the Olympics. Um, and so I, 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 I've I, always sort of chuckled at that because all over the world, in South America and Europe and elsewhere, people would tell me, oh, it's because they didn't get the World Cup. And that's, that's just not the fact.
0: Another thing that I've always been under the impression on is that Sepp Blatter actually voted for the U.S. in that vote. That,
2: that's right. Blatter has said that he supported the U.S. and that um, he didn't support Britain. He supported uh, Russia for 2018, uh, but he supported the U.S. for 2022. And I believe him. Um, I think that he was a businessman or is a businessman. And I think he recognized the mass, massive commercial appeal of a U.S. World Cup. So I think I think that that he was behind the U.S. and um you know, I think that he's conflating those things um, for his own sort of benefit to believe that he that he couldn't have done anything wrong. But um, my sense is that however Qatar got the World Cup, it wasn't something that Blatter supported. He, by the way, is another character that um, uh, you mentioned Chuck Blazer earlier. Bladder's another one who you, you leave sort of scratching your head if you ever interact with him because he's portrayed as sort of the ultimate Bond villain in, in popular media. But if you meet him, it's much more subtle and complicated than that and, um, and you begin to appreciate how difficult it must be to govern something like FIFA. Um, and I'm not excusing the sort of governance system he, he, he came to represent, but um, I don't envy him the job. It's not easy dealing with so many people who want to put a knife between your shoulders all the time. Um, and so I think that history maybe hasn't been 100% kind to of the man.
0: I mean, my sense is, yeah, my sense has always been that um, the structure of FIFA is a huge part of the problem that Sepp Blatter himself may not have committed or, you know, he's under investigation, obviously, but I don't think he was necessarily taking money under the table on things. He had a lot of money coming through the front door, but he certainly, in my sense, over the years, had a culture... That he was aware of some of this stuff and didn't do much to stop it.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, Grant. I mean, the, there's never been anything that I've seen that shows him taking a scent he shouldn't have taken. I think it's his bigger problem seems to be the turning the blind eye phenomenon, which is his desire for power meant that he w- was willing to let people, tacitly allow people to do things that they shouldn't have because he wanted to. He didn't want to uh, rock the boat, or he wanted to find ways to make people happy so that he could continue in power. And those, that was the deal he was seemed to be prepared to make over and over again. Um, and, you know, other journalists um, have sort of unru- uh, revealed some of those things. Andrew Jennings famously sort of found out that maybe um, uh, Blatter was aware or should have been aware that um, his predecessor, Avalanche, was taking these uh, massive bribes from ISL, which was a giant now defunct marketing company, And didn't say anything and should have said something. And there's sort of a long legacy of this sort of thing. Like he should have done something but didn't. And the reason he didn't is because he didn't want to rock the boat.
0: And At this point, then, I feel like I should bring up Sunil Gulati. We talked about Americans in FIFA, and you mentioned Alan Rothenberg, that they tried to get Blazer to wear a wire around Rothenberg. Sunil Gulati, in recent years, has been the most powerful American in FIFA, both before and after the scandal. He's still on the FIFA Council, even though he's no longer the U.S. soccer president. Um, Does his name come up much in all your research?
2: Um, it certainly comes up a lot, and I will I will be the first to admit that I spent a lot of time uh, digging into him and trying to understand what makes him tick and who he knows and all that. And uh, essentially, this is a guy who was who um, was mentored by Chuck Blazer and by later by Rothenberg and other people within the U.S. soccer power base. And um, he's a he's someone who had office space within Chuck Blazer's Concacaf offices in the Trump Tower for a number of years, and. Has benefited tremendously from his alliance with people like that. Blazer um, uh, helped him get a seat on the CONCACAF executive committee. Um, Blazer was instrumental in getting him all kinds of opportunities in soccer, and you know, it certainly, could be argued that his his place within US Soccer also was a benefit of both Blazer and uh, and Rothenberg, who who pushed him along at the right time. So um, he stands on he stood on their shoulders to a large degree. Um, at the same time, no one's ever pinned him with um, with any specific you know ill doing um, and so um, and, and I can tell you there's a lot of people who have been gunning for Sunil over the years and um, have never necessarily turned up anything um, uh, in terms of investigation the first question on sort of every uh, hardcore U.S. soccer fans lips is um, how come he never got indicted or you know is was he a secret cooperator with the U.S. justice and believe me Grant I asked um, and that's a topic no one wants to talk about. My sense is that he must have had at least a conversation or two with um, American either prosecutors or our federal agents. Um, it would be sort of bad police work on their part if they didn't talk to him. But um, you know, there's one there's, there's one thing is having conversations with people, and another is actually turning them into full fledged informants and informant. You know, there are people who become informants because they just want to see truth out. But that's pretty rare. Most people become cooperators, uh, which is the technical term for what we think of as an informant, um, because they're over a barrel and the government gives them no choice. When Chuck Blazer agreed to wear a wire, it wasn't because he wanted to stand up for truth, justice in the American way. He did it because they they said maybe you'll spend a little less time in jail if you do this. Um, So um, it may be that they never had. Uh, the goods on Gulati enough to get him uh, in a position to be informant or they weren't targeting him that way or what, it, what it may be. But I don't get the sense that he was the kind of guy who would be wearing a wire for the government and making um, secret recordings. That's not the impression I got M- more that he was a person of interest. They looked into and ultimately didn't, didn't take any action on.
0: So where is the FIFA case now? And where do we go from here?
2: So, um, in November and December of last year, um, there were, uh, was a big trial in Brooklyn. Uh, it was a six week federal trial of three defendants in the case. Um, a Brazilian, a Peruvian and a Paraguayan. Um, the Brazilian had been president of the, uh, of Brazil soccer confederation. The Paraguayan had been the president of, uh, Paraguays and then president of all of CONCACAF, um, and a FIFA vice president. And the, um, Peruvian was president of uh, Peru's football association and um, it was a very sensational trial. A lot of wild and crazy things happened about some of which are detailed in my book, but some of them, it was just too much to fit in, but it was a really, it was quite a trial. It had sort of, uh, um, uh, moments that felt like a, a, um, an old-school mafia trial. It had moments of levity and humor, um, tension, tears in the courtroom. Uh, uh, one person, a public official in Argentina, who was mentioned by one of the witnesses um, as having received bribes the very same day, threw himself in, a, in front of a train in Buenos Aires and died, uh, apparently committed suicide because he was mentioned in this trial. So a crazy trial. Um, And at the end of it, two of the three people were convicted. Um, The uh, Paraguayan and the Brazilian were convicted by the jury. Um, The Peruvian was a special case, and he was only being charged with one thing compared to the others who had multiple counts. And he was acquitted on that one charge and is back in Peru. Um, But the others are currently in a uh, detention center in Brooklyn waiting their sentences. And there's about two dozen other people waiting their sentences as well. So that stage of the trial is Um, kind of waiting for sentencings, which I think are supposed to begin starting sort of around August or September of this year. But meanwhile, there's other arms of the investigation that continue. Um, It wasn't too much notice in the press, but about a year ago, um, there there was a conviction in the case announced of a guy from Guam, uh, which is a U.S. protectorate, but it's not part of CONCACAF. It's part of um, the Asian Football Confederation. And um, it was the president of the Guam uh, Football Association who turns out to have been taking bribes for years. And what's interesting is that his bribes appear to have come from a whole different uh, set of people um, whose names are interesting uh, for other reasons. One of them is Mohammed bin uh, bin Hammam, uh the Qatar, former head of the Qatari uh, Football Association. And the other is a, is a fellow from Kuwait, um, Sheikh Ahmad, who um, is is powerful in soccer, but even more powerful in the world of Olympics. Um, He's the head of Asia's um, Olympics uh, Confederation. And so um, uh, what that taught us is that the U.S. investigators are looking very hard at Asia. And, you know, the Asian soccer world extends from Japan all the way to um, the Middle East. And it includes Qatar and Saudi Arabia and all these countries that we um, have been looking at uh, lately um, for all kinds of other reasons. So um, there's 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 reason to to think that maybe we could see potentially people brought to justice from whole different regions of the world.
0: As we wind up here, I just got a couple more questions. Really appreciate the time. Um, of course. How much did this U.S. investigation cost so far, and was it a good use of government resources?
2: It's a great it's a great question, and I don't I've never seen anyone put a number to how much it cost. I mean, certainly in terms of just. The salaries and the manpower alone, it was it was considerable, right? We're talking at one point there was um, over 10, maybe a dozen prosecutors on this case at once, which is, uh, I've never met, I can't find anyone who's ever seen a case with many prosecutors working on it at the same time. Just massive. Um, I mean, the only case I can think of actually with a larger number of prosecutors working on it actively is Robert Mueller's um, special counsel currently investigating uh, President Trump and his connections to Russia, and that, I think, last count has 18 prosecutors. But most Cases even large ones have no more than four or five prosecutors on it. So for the FIFA case to have 12 gives you a sense of, of what a massive uh, resource uh, consumer this was. And at the same time, these guys are flying all over the world, interviewing people in different in different countries and different continents. Um, they're flying people into the U.S. and elsewhere for meetings. I mean, there was a lot of clandestine meetings with. Potential cooperators in, in different places around the world. They had people flying to Rome, to London, to New York to have these meetings. So there's a cost there. Um, and there's massive costs in terms of dealing with a huge amount of documentation they brought in um, ten, literally tens of millions of documents um, from all over the world that had to be brought in, analyzed, reviewed, and prepared. Um, one of the prosecutors involved in the case told me that the trial prep for this case was, um, by orders of magnitude, the most difficult thing. Um, this person had ever seen um, done and, and, you know, almost broke him. I mean, it was just so much work. Um, so there's no question it was a massive resource uh, suck at the same time that the, what they've gotten from people who um, who pleaded guilty is considerable money too. Um, the amount of money that companies and individuals who are convicted of the case have agreed to forfeit runs into the hundreds of millions of dollars. I've lost count, but it's well north of three or four hundred million dollars that they've they've got from people, uh, committed to forfeit in the case. So, um, it may be a case that it really actually covered its own costs in that respect. Um, and had money left over for people to claim, um, as victims of the different corrupt schemes. And so indeed, both FIFA and I believe CONCACAF have already filed with the court asking to be, re- uh, to get recompense for, for money they feel was unjustly taken from them. Um, and you know, was it worth it? Well, uh, you know, Certainly, we have multiple generations of soccer removed, and and a serious attempt in several places to change the governance governance structures of the sport. And you have these these major efforts to clean things up. Um, Juries still out over whether soccer is really cleaned up, but um, there's no question that the multiple investigations around the world that are in process um, in other countries—Spain, Switzerland, France, Germany—none um, of those would have happened without this. And so I, I mean I think that for those who care about the sport and cleaning it up, I think it's it's really a no-brainer about that one. Now, you know, obviously, soccer officials and their families and friends who have been who have been affected by this would argue differently. Um, but I think if you ask your casual uh, soccer fan on the street, or you know, you grant you'll be in Russia, um, if you ask fans of uh, of different World Cup teams whether they think it was a good thing, I think most of them, on balance, will say absolutely.
0: And also, this project is. Uh, been associated with some pretty big names in the movie business. Uh, are we going to see this as a movie? Who are you connected with on it?
2: Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. So um, this this was optioned for a movie. A red Card was optioned for a movie by Warner Brothers, um, who has the option. And it's a package deal where there's um, some producers and a director and others attached. And um, it's really exciting., uh, uh, the production company that run by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon um, are attached to produce this. And um, you know, I think uh, uh, this has great uh, possibilities for a movie. I mean, it, it could it ha- could have the tone of a of a mafia movie or something like that. The characters are just that intense. There's that many um, secret deals and smoky rooms and people wearing wires. And I don't know, I've heard people sort of, Imagine it being something like American Hustle or something, and that would certainly be fun. Um, but I'm, I'm obviously very hopeful that they make a movie out of this, and I think a lot of soccer fans are as well. Um, some people say, well, maybe it should be. There's so many characters and so much complexity; it should be a series. And I think that's a good idea too. But I, I you know, I'm hopeful for the movie. I'm hopeful that uh, that Ben and Matt and others will, will agree. And and then, you know, the only question really is who to play all the different roles. I, I think your audience. Um, scratch your head for a while and think of people <laughs> to play you know chuck Blazer's one that i've heard a lot of you know the one i've heard the most about jack blazer is john goodman oh wow um, people imagine i think you can imagine that right i could um, i like it so that's one i've heard and um jack warner would be a fun one to cast the guy well. who played um, clay
0: davis on the Wire is the guy who should play jack warner i think
2: oh that's perfect that's totally perfect <laughs> I mean, of course, I don't know how anyone does the thick Trinidadian accent, but, we'll, you know, to figure it out. And so I think there there could be a lot of fun with the the casting of those kind of things. And maybe maybe we could get some kind of social media thing going where people get to propose their ideal cast.
0: (laughs) Well, the book is Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. Ken Bensinger, thanks for joining me. And congratulations on the book.
2: Grant, thank you so much for having me. Um, Good luck in uh, covering the World Cup. And I'm sure we'll talk soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the Planet Football World Cup Daily Podcast. I'd like to thank Ken Bensinger and Brian Strauss, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. We'll see you tomorrow.